0: Welcome to The Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CAL. The Great Asian Pushback features stories of defiance and hope from Southeast and East Asia. Individuals, young and old, and organizations on the ground and online are assisting authoritarian regimes. There's our voices crying out for freedom and democracy, These podcasts aim to empower and inspire all of you out there who are shining the light on the darkness in this part of the world.
1: Hello, welcome to The Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CALD. I'm Marites Vitug, a journalist from the Philippines, and I will be your host for this series. Milk tea is served differently in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Thailand, and Myanmar. But this brew has gotten together young people from these places in Southeast and East Asia, all fighting for democracy. They have formed a loose network of activists called the Milk Tea Alliance with a seemingly anti-China sentiment. They don't have identifiable leaders, they are social media savvy, and they cross-promote causes. Thai activists resist their authoritarian leader, Hong Kongers are up in arms against Beijing, same with the Taiwanese, and Myanmar is struggling against the military junta. I will be speaking to Dr. Roger Huang, a lecturer at Macquarie University, on the prospects of the Milk Tea Alliance. He is joining us from Sydney. Dr. Huang, welcome to the Great Asian Pushback.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, maybe first of all, for our uh, viewers and listeners, can you tell us about the symbolism of the milk tea? Sure,
2: so it's interesting because milk tea just happened to be such a popular drink in all of the uh, so-called members of this uh, milk tea alliance. So of course, um, you have the Thais with the Chai Yan, which is you can get in basically any Thai restaurants anywhere in the world, and it's very popular. Um, you have in Hong Kong, the nai chai, you know, the, the milk tea that's been there since British colonial days. And you have in, in Taiwan as well, the boba, the pearl milk tea that everyone you know, knows very well. And also in Myanmar, you have la peye, uh, the the, the uh, kind of the hot version of milk tea that is uh, found in all the streets of the major cities and villages and towns of Myanmar. So you have this common drink that, uh, you know, all for. Um, jurisdictions, countries, territories, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, have in their everyday life that is very in de- very kind of ingrained in their identity.
1: So um, what led to the Milk Tea Alliance? I mean, what factors converged or triggered the forming of, a, of the Milk Tea Alliance?
2: So I think a lot of people will probably know some of the basic backgrounds, how it was just a, a frivolous kind of internet activity of a Thai pop star uh, or TV uh, BL drama star that led to kind of Chinese netizens attacking him and kind of demanding apologies. Things that we have seen um, consistently happening right when something is said or written um, anywhere in the world that the Chinese uh, nationalists do not like to hear. Then they attack them with kind of real viral toxic uh, toxic kind of nationalist agenda now two factors played in in this particular case that grew this alliance. One is what I've just described, right? This overreach of Chinese nationalists trying to police the internet anywhere, um, even outside of China, especially outside of China in this context. And then two, you have a new generation of what we call digital natives, right? So all these young people who grow up comfortably with using the internet, using social media, they they basically were born in an era where social media came into prominence. So this is something to them that is very natural that the social media and the digital space is an extension of their everyday reality. So when you have Um, particularly, uh, you know, citizens or netizens from a country that comes from a very close internet and authoritarian context, it makes them angry, right? These people, whether in Thailand or Taiwan or Hong Kong or elsewhere, who have had years of relatively free and open internet suddenly being exposed to this kind of toxic, um, ultra-nationalistic agenda from the Chinese. And that simply just does not bode well for a young generation of uh, activists.
1: So the Alliance is basically a digital, an online movement. Is that a witness or a strength or both?
2: Sure. Um, so yeah, the, the Multi-Alliance is uh, what I call a kind of an imagined digital political community, right? So you have pointed out, a lot of this is taking on place on the internet through social media, Um, Twitter plays a big role, uh, but also Facebook and other um, social media platforms. And this is a strength because you don't have any borders. There's no restrictions. It's instantaneous. People, um, as long as they have access to the Internet um, uh, or at least uh, ways to access Internet through VPNs and whatnot, if you've seen Internet crackdowns, then they can connect with anyone in the world. Uh, Information and tactics and strategies can be um, exchanged uh, very quickly. And also of, with the current technologies, I mean, it's not perfect, but you still have enough technology to translate the different languages. Right. So this allow these uh, broad alliance of people from all these different, very different contexts, Myanmar, Thailand, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan. And even as far as, uh, you know, there, I'm aware even in the Philippines, there are people who have kind of tapped into this alliance in Malaysia, in the, Indonesia, as well as here in Australia. So. The internet allows all these different people to come together to share ideas, to share strategies, and show solidarity and support from one another. So that is definitely a strength. Now, the weakness, of course, is because if you look at it more closely, the different struggles of these uh, the four core members, if you consider, it, right, which is Myanmar, Thailand, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, their demand and their political Um, Agenda is actually very different, right? It's focused on the local context. So in the context of um, the latest member Myanmar, that was a a very reactive thing because of the military coup, because of changing political circumstances in Myanmar in February that led them to join this digital alliance. Similarly, Thailand, one of the original founders, their movement that led to this, you know, they were kind of the trigger that allowed the building of this military alliance is also very much focused on reforming their political system, whether it's um, against kind of the long uh, lingering royalist military kind of um, alliance that has controlled the political economy of that country. In Hong Kong, of course, it's that shrinking political civic space because of Beijing's kind of and hard crackdown, introduction of national security law, and all these things, whereas in Taiwan, which is a bit of an outlier, given that it is the only um, democracy um, in, in this alliance, and doesn't really have the same type of, um, it doesn't have the same role, right? It's not exactly fighting against a state actor. Whereas in the Myanmar, Hong Kong, Thai case, they are kind of the the, the struggling, the the, the underdogs fighting against the authoritarian establishment. Whereas Taiwan's role is a bit strange. It's kind of the the model, right? This is the the ideal um, democracy we have in Asia that countries like Thailand and Myanmar and city-states like Hong Kong can emulate. But at the same time, they do share that kind of common fear of a rising Chinese authoritarian system and influence over the region. So I think the weakness is that it is on the one hand, broadly united in a pro-democratic vision for for the region. But but the thing is, they also have very different political contexts that they have to address. And also the issue that apart from Taiwan, which really, again, has a very peripheral role in this, the other three members are the underdogs, right? They are the one being um, attacked by their own government
1: but I think, uh, Roger, correct me if I'm wrong, but in Myanmar, there was an underground protest, right, led by the Milk Tea Alliance. It wasn't just a digital uh, protest. So the Milk Tea Alliance could spill onto the streets as well.
2: Yeah, so, uh, and, and that's why I try to call this Milk Tea Alliance an, an imagined digital political community, because most of the activities are on the internet, right? There's hashtags, the meme wars, the exchange of information and, and in, increasingly important is the documenting uh, documentation of history, right? They're documenting what is happening now. I mean, just the other day, um, it was all over the, the Myanmar social media where uh, unfortunately five young activists chose to jump off an uh, uh, apartment when the, when the military was basically trying to arrest them. And this was kind of publicized all over the internet. But what you're suggesting is that now this G- digital alliance has moved into an offline physical space. And you're right, and it's not just in Myanmar. This has happened um, for, for some time now, to be honest. You do see um, when you have Thai protesters in the streets, they bring kind of pro-Taiwan, pro-Hong Kong, pro, uh, pro-Myanmar pro protesters, all these different kind of symbols and flags and banners supporting one another's movement. So you do see this manifested in the physical street protest. You do also see rallies um, in Taiwan, for example, you had um, students rally in support of the anti-coup movement in Myanmar, in support of the Thai students' demand for political reforms. And even here in Australia, you've had Milti Alliance rallies. They actually call themselves milky Alliance rallies. And you have Thai, you know, Thai Australian, Myanmar, Australian, Taiwanese australian and, and Hong Kongers who have all come together rallying and, you know, showing their support for people back in Asia.
1: And uh, one thing also about the Milk Alliance is just like the Thai protests, the Hong Kong protests, they don't have fixed or identifiable leaders. Um, how does this work? How does this uh, even keep the alliance together, the absence of leaders? Yeah, so this also
2: goes back a little bit to the earlier question and point I was trying to make about the strength and weakness, right? So this is certainly uh, Kind of a double-edged sword. Um, this leaderless movement is also something that's not exactly new. You've seen um, transnational uh, movements in the past, whether it's you know earlier generation of anti-globalization. Um, whether it's the, uh, the against the Iraqi war and more recently the Black Lives Matter, et cetera, in the United States context. So this leaderless transnational movement isn't actually new. Of course, in the Hong Kong context, they have long had this idea of uh, be like water, the Bruce Lee idea where that, you know, you're, you're, you're flexible, you can do things and you don't have this fixed leadership and there's a lot of truth to that, right? Because you don't have just one unifying figure, then if you crack down on, say, uh, you know, opinion leaders and, and student activists, others might still step in in the role and continue this, this alliance and this kind of pro-democratic movement. But that's, of course, also a weakness. When you don't have um, a greater organization and coherence, it's hard for you to really uh, advocate your agenda and try to reach some sort of political settlement. Because at the end of the day, um, unless you have a revolution, let's be honest, unless you have a revolution, how will you have the political establishment willing to concede? You need someone that you can sit down and have uh, a discussion. I know this is not popular opinion, especially in Myanmar context, where anyone who kind of states, well, we need to do something more concrete rather than protest. But the way I see it, you need to have a greater coherence um, and greater unity. Now, I do think the the movement has evolved. I think there are opinion leaders and communities that are actively trying to uh, produce this greater coherence among the different members. So for example, in Thailand, the president of the uh, uh, the student president of the Chulalongkorn Kong Union, I think he recently has um, translated textbooks and books uh, about Taiwan's political history and, and a selection of human rights texts by Lee the, Uliger. Uh, the uh, Dissident. So you have seen people actively trying to understand the other's movement. So not just concerned about the Thai movement or about the Myanmar movement, but a broader kind of understanding of each other's movement. You have in Myanmar, a hip hop collective that produces a song called uh, Death to Dictators, that no old dictators must die. Uh, inviting rappers and hip hop artists producing this music video from you know, from almost everywhere there. You have uh, uh, Indian art music musicians, you have Indonesians, you have Taiwanese, Hong Kongers, Thais, and Myanmar. So you have this collection of international artists producing this this music video with a clear message that's not just focused on their own movements but saying we need to work as a region to uh, basically fight against regional authoritarianism.
1: It's very interesting that, as you said, it has evolved already, but do these members or countries share lessons with each other, do these protest movements, and what are the key lessons you've been watching uh, all of these um, milk tears in different countries?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there are some practical things that we all know about, right? So they have learned from one another the different strategies and tactics, you know, what to do when they're, you know, if the police shoots rubber bullet or you, you use tear gas. So we've seen that, you know, where the hard cast have been used in Hong Kong and in umbrellas, and that's been replicated in Thailand. It's been replicated in Myanmar. So there are strategies and tactics and the way they use Uh, social technology, you know, using telegram, using those encrypted messages to try to protect one another. So there are actual learning, right? But at the same time, if if you're trying to look at successful strategy to try to dismantle the authoritarian governance, the political establishment, I'm not quite sure that has been learned yet. And again, this comes to difficulty because the military alliance really grew from a reactionary response right it wasn't it was a response because of the situation getting worse and sadly sadly so right so in a hong kong context which arguably was one that really kind of started this new wave of student-led protest it was because the hong kong um, government is becoming even more repressive it's dismantling the old liberal civic space that used to exist in hong kong which no longer exists in the thai context it was because the government uh, in alliance with the Constitutional Courts and whatnot, dissolved the future Ford political party, which the young generation supported. In the Myanmar context, it was because the military coup that replaced the National League for Democracy in Aung San Suu Kyi's government. So prior to that, especially in the Myanmar case, which I always find interesting, Myanmar wasn't involved with the Milky Alliance until they became victims himself of resurgence of hard authoritarianism. Right. When they had the opportunity, when the National League for Democracy was in government for five years, yes, it wasn't a perfect uh, political system. They had to work with the military. The military were basically coalition partners under the San Suu Kyi's government. But they didn't take advantage of this to try to promote democratic liberal values and to work with civil society actors, to work with liberal party members outside of Myanmar. Right, um, I think a lot of our uh, multi-alliance netizens if, might not be aware, for example, right, that when Aung San Suu Kyi's government was still in place, the National League for Democracy government supported China's position when it comes to the national security law uh, in Hong Kong, supported China's position on how they treat the wool against in China. Right, So there's a lot of these missed opportunities when people we think are democratic and liberal, when they come into a position of power, they, they miss using that chance to actually change the norm. And that's what I think is important with the multi Alliance is that, you know, there is only so much they can do as the underdogs, but it's important to continue to build this real norm, this real respect for liberal, democratic, progressive values. Don't waste it. Don't cut out your potential allies and your current allies for short-term benefits. Um, a good example is when Tana the former leader of uh, Future Forward, met Joshua Wong, a student activist from Hong Kong, and was criticized by the Chinese embassy. He quickly backed out and, and, and kind of, you know, said something like, oh, it was just in you know, a public event, it was trying to be polite. Well, in fact, he could have said something like, well, I'm a Thai, why should I listen to what the Chinese have to say? I support my democratic uh, brothers everywhere. And this is a position that I think a lot of people involved in the Alliance alliance is- is taking on now, right? That we are all brothers and sisters committing to this vision. And I think that is the key here is that we need to be persistent. Um, it is going to be a long process. I think people need to have realistic expectations that these deep rooted authoritarian regimes won't be replaced overnight. But you need to be persistent to continue to build this community, com- continue to be um, you know, genuinely respectful of the liberal democratic values that we uh, aspire to.
1: Actually, you gave a fascinating comparison on the, of the local context of each country. But the, apart from being anti-authoritarian, the other layer, is, as you said earlier, is this anti-China sentiment. Is that, is that carried across all the four um, alliance members, I mean, loose alliance members?
2: Yeah, I, I think the China factor here, this is kind of the backdrop, right? This is also kind of the... The changes that's taken place globally and also regionally in Asia Pacific, this kind of rise of authoritarian governance. Right. For me, back up until maybe, you know, especially during the Obama era, people are still excited about democracy and that democracy is going to change everything. Everyone is going to become more democratic. Right. We all not, not me personally. I've always been a pessimist. But a lot of the mainstream rhetoric was that, you know, democracy is just going to spread. Everyone's going to become democratic, uh, especially with social media, with Facebook, with Twitter and all these things. Uh, societies will open up. And this has been proven to be uh, false. Right? We've seen uh, democracy suffer even in old political establishments, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in the UK, here in Australia, and also especially in Asia. Right? We've seen democratic institutions being attacked everywhere, especially the four four kind of members we've discussed. In Myanmar, very clear, especially now with the coup. In Thailand, again, very clear, the kind of the resurgence of the the, the military role as alliance. In Hong Kong, it's probably the most close-off Hong Kong society has been in several decades. Right, They've lost all these great freedoms. And in Taiwan, even though it is, I think, in my opinion, a high-quality democracy, you've seen China really up and up It's kind of uh, oppression and hostility and aggression against Taiwan. So there is that common one, that broader trend I'm suggesting is that this resurgence of authoritarianism everywhere is provoking people who are more democratic and progressive and liberal minded to say, look, we need to make a stop to this. Now, the second layer is that because China is kind of the model of. Uh, successful authoritarian governance. Now, successful from their perspective, obviously, because, you know, it's now the second biggest economy. It's pulling its way in international uh, forums. You know, it's bullying uh, older, established democracies like here in Australia, where we've, we've really felt the economic and political coercion of the Chinese state here in Australia. So there is that one rejection of the kind of the growing support and growing kind of victory of authoritarian forces. And then two, China's kind of global reach and political and economic clout in the region. Now, just that, on that one final point. And it's also, of course, because China is effectively largest uh, economic and political power in Asia Pacific now, that uh, it is the largest trading partner for all of those members you've mentioned, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Myanmar, and Thailand. And probably the Philippines, I'm sure, where China is effectively the biggest trading partner of all these countries uh, and, and city-states. And you know, so so they're fielding this big neighbor who is not democratic, who's not willing to help um promote liberal progressive values, given that they're obviously quite repressive back in China themselves. So they're uneasy about this.
1: Do you see do you see the Milky Alliance? Um As a sustainable alliance, a sustainable loose organization, how much time are you giving it? Or is it going to be like spasmodic? It will come up when they're needed, then rest when they're not.
2: But I think that's one thing and kind of what you implied that, that you can come and come and go. And I think that's part of that strength that we were talking about earlier because it's the digital loose network. And you can, you know, and there are having people, you know, data scientists who have looked at the kind of the trend of, you know, when multi-alliance is tweeted. But this is uh, more than just well, it's more than just what we would consider a kind of the older transnational movements, right? Because it is more of an ideology and an idea that as long as people continue to engage with it, then this movement itself will not disappear. Sure, you'll see times when people might not uh, tweet or hashtag the, exactly the same multi-alliance hashtag anymore, but it doesn't mean the force is not there. And the availability of people to keep on tap in and out I think it's a strength, right? You've seen um, uh, kind of social media allowing to, when physical protests die down, when street rallies die down, people are still engaging with one another online and still talking about potential, looking for weakness of authoritarianism when they could come back again. So it allows uh, the potential for protesters, both in the digital and offline space, to come back quickly again when they they can find that political opportunity. So, you know, I, I hate to make predictions. I think uh, the multi-alliance is here to stay. Um, you will see ebb and flows. You'll certainly see times where the multi-alliance seems you know, to be very quiet. That doesn't mean that it will disappear. And we also have to think carefully what exactly is a multi-alliance. Even a lot of things that we, we should really consider as part of this broader movement, right, uses very different hashtags, but it's really the same thing. Um, everyone is probably very aware of the hashtag what is happening series, right? So now you've extended to this hashtag what is happening in Thailand, what is happening in Myanmar, et cetera. So this really is all part of that broader ideological kind of revival, if you will, of this nation push for genuine democracy for, uh, um, for our region.
1: So since the Milk Tea Alliance is here to stay, uh, it's going to be a threat to China in terms of perception popular perception of the youth in the region? Because China has been dismissive of the Milk Alliance.
2: So uh, there are two things I think we need to consider. One, I think the Milk Alliance demonstrates that China, despite its economic and political clout, has failed to sell itself, right? Its soft power has completely failed. It has failed to sell itself for people to organically, genuinely like the Chinese system. No, you know, I mean, of course, you always find, um, you know, people who do support the Chinese system, especially uh, people with uh, economic types, right? So you have the, a lot of the economic political elites, of course, who will be supportive of China, but it's a young generation that will come of age, that will one day take over these important positions. So I think China should be worried that, you know, you at the moment, people are only really willing to support the Chinese system because of, of direct economic incentives. It's not like they're really sold, unless you're a committed Chinese nationalist, it's not like they're sold to the idea of the Chinese authoritarian system being a superior system. So there's always this worry, I think, that um, eventually when, if and when, uh, these multi-alliance progressive Coming to some position of power, that could really change the dynamics again, where Asia might again tilt closer back towards the, the, the other superpower, frankly, the United States.
1: So just one more question, a final question, Roger. It's been really a, a fascinating discussion. So if you were to give advice to the Milk Tea Alliance people, what would it be? I mean, what gaps do they need to fill or what do they need to do?
2: Yeah, as I've kind of briefly mentioned, I think greater kind of understanding and exchanges between the uh, different members is necessary. I think there is growing evidence of that, as I've suggested with the translation of texts from, uh, you know, into the local languages to understand each other's movement, the uh, rap against uh, junta, all these kind of international collaboration. I think that's really important that they really need to kind of Understand again. If you want to move this movement beyond just your consideration for your own country, then you need to have this greater unity and cohesion with the others. Now, in terms of um, immediate, real goal of trying to topple authoritarian regimes, uh, I, I, you know, I, I have to be frank. I'm not quite sure. Um, I think there needs to be a healthy um, skepticism. Uh, of where this is going, I I, need, I think it needs to be realistic. I think everyone needs to be realistic whether it's in Hong Kong or in Myanmar or in Thailand. But one thing they really might need to consider is how do you try to find potential um, sympathizers and potential collaborators from within the regime? Because if you look at, again, the only successful case of genuine democratization. Uh, a democracy and general democratization, the transfer from authoritarian regime to democracy, it's Taiwan. Taiwan wasn't a democracy really until, I would argue, uh, early 2000. Of course, it went through that democratic transition in the 1990s. But that really was because there was regime insider within uh, the party, uh, President Lee Dong Hui, who you know who sadly passed away last year, and everyone remember him now as kind of father of uh, no, the, dem- the Taiwan's democracy, Mister Democracy. I say call him, and he was the president during that period. He was the leader of an authoritarian uh, party, the Chinese uh, Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, right? So how do we, whether in Hong Kong or Myanmar or Thailand, try to find these sympathizers? It's not going to be easy and there might not be one, especially I think in Hong Kong context, which is very different because it has that added layer of direct influence from China, right? Where the Chinese influence and threat to Myanmar and Thai democratic movements, a lot more peripheral. So how do you do that? You know, I, I, don't have a, I don't have an answer to that question myself, but I think it is important to try to find that weakness, to f- try to find that potential you know, you know, a person or a group of people within the regime establishment that might be sympathetic, that might be able to help change the norm or change, or, or be less oppressive working from within the
1: system. Thank you so much, Roger, for giving us your time. And on that note, uh, we will keep watching what will happen to the Milk Tea Alliance. Thank you, you. goodbye. Thank you for keeping us company. Keep pushing back against autocracy. Keep fighting for democracy.
0: The Great Asian Pushback is produced by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats with the support of the Friedrich Nauman Foundation for Freedom. This episode was made by Marites Vitug, Lito Arlege, and Paulo Zamora. With creative input from Jaja Hanolo, administrative assistance from Odi Frias and Chelsea Caballero, and editing by Point B Multimedia.